0: Well, this morning we are going to uh, continue in a series called Anchored. And um, just if you, uh, this is the third part in this series that we began a few weeks back. Melnix, good to see you. Welcome from Rochester. And uh, good to have you. But this is the third part in this series. And uh, the name uh, Anchored really is a word that I, when I think of an anchor, I think of. That which a ship, and if you've ever been on a cruise ship or you were in the Navy or something, you know, that there's, some, there's anchors you take out to the fishing pond, which might be a cinder block and a rope, <laughs> um, or anchors that are quite big depending on the ship. And, but they are meant to provide stability. They are meant to hold that uh, ship, boat, whatever it is, to hold it in place, to hold it firm. And uh, this month is a uh, special month in our Christian heritage, Christian history, and it's the month that uh, churches, Protestant churches, non-Roman Catholic churches, celebrate what is referred to as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that Reformation uh, is often designated as Refor- on Reformation Sunday, which is the last Sunday of October, Uh, churches traditionally will celebrate that, and maybe you come out of a background, a Lutheran background or Presbyterian or whatever, where that was more celebrated than uh, some of us that did not come out of the more liturgical backgrounds. But it still is, all of us have a connection to our Reformation roots. Uh, Whether you're Methodist, whether you're Assembly of God, whether you're Baptist, uh, we all trace our roots as Protestants, and that word, Protestant has the word in it. Protest. It was a movement of protest. Uh, Martin Luther, who uh, we again acknowledge as the the point person uh, in the Reformation, and uh, but he was not the only one. He wasn't the only one. Martin Luther, when he on uh, October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, when he nailed uh, these ninety five thesis statements on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, Uh, he was a monk, he was a Catholic priest, he was a theologian, he was a teacher of the Roman Catholic Church. And he did this on that particular Lord's Day, and uh, it was common in the communities of that culture that anything, a public notice, or if you had a meeting, or you wanted to have a discussion or a debate... Uh, the church, which uh, rep- you know was often at the center point of the community, uh, it was very common to nail these things on the door it wasn 't vandalism it wasn 't uh, anything like that but it was just common that if you wanted a public notice you you, you would uh, that 's how you 'd go about it and all he was seeking to do uh, and uh, as a young Catholic monk priest, theologian, all he was wanting to do. Uh, was to have a a discussion on areas uh, that he thought, as he studied Scripture, that were contrary to what the church was doing and what the Bible taught. As I said, he wasn't the first one. There was many others that preceded him. Probably 100 years before him, there was a uh, Czechoslovakian uh, priest by the name of John Huss, and he was burned literally burned to death at the stake because he questioned the infallibility of the Pope uh, and more specifically regarding what it, what we, we talked a little bit about this last week was called indulgences. And that was really became the catalyst of where Luther saw this abuse. And there were certainly other things, but it was this idea of indulgences. And if you're not familiar with what an, an indulgence is, really s- simply an indulgence... Was something uh, was a grant or a, a particular um, uh, gift from the church or the pope, primarily, by which an individual uh, could apply that to one of their dead relatives who were uh, was in purgatory. And if you know what a purgatory is, it's uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine is that the sins that are not paid for here on earth, you Pay for them in this kind of spiritual halfway house. I'm not trying to be funny, but that's kind of it. You, and however long that takes, then you then you can go to heaven. Uh, and so, an indulgence was this that if you um, had a you know relative or somebody that you knew had died, and uh, more than likely uh, everybody had to spend time in purgatory, then this was a way that you could shorten their time in purgatory, all right? So you would engage or purchase an indulgence or receive an indulgence and it had to be an official indulgence from the church. Well, this was something that um, during Luther's time, what really sparked his ire, as I said, the, the Reformation began with a building program that went bad, church building program meaning that they saw this, this man by the name of, uh, and I believe his name was uh, Johann Tetzel, uh, that he was traveling around representing the Pope, selling indulgences. Now remember, there was, the literacy rate was pretty much nil unless you were in the wealthy academic class. And so anything that a priest or anything that uh, the church would teach you would have no way of questioning or knowing because if you did have access to a Bible in the parish, it oftentimes was attached by chain or lock to the podium and it was written in Latin. Okay, so not only could you not read, but even if you could, it was written in a... If you lived in Germany, you didn't know Latin. I mean, you get the idea. And so uh, Luther reacted because what Tetzel was doing... Uh, He was representing Pope Leo, uh, I believe that Pope Leo X in Rome, and Pope Leo was intent on remodeling St. Peter's Basilica, and he needed money. And so part of this scheme was to sell indulgences, sell indulgences, as he would travel around Germany... He would sell these indulgences, and for so much amount of money, you could purchase an indulgence on behalf of a dead grandmother, grandfather, whatever, and uh, shorten their punishment in purgatory by the purchase of this indulgence. Okay? Luther said, uh, (laughs) that's... We got that, that's an abuse, uh, and so part of this these ninety five this ninety five theses that, that that they refer to or statements, most of them had to do with this abuse, and it was rooted back to is that something the pope can do to grant forgiveness of sins. First of all, in purgatory, if we even, you know, where the biblical concept of purgatory doesn't exist, somebody asked me, said, Well, where in the Bible does it teach purgatory? Here's, it doesn't, okay? There is no teaching about that. That was the that was the catalyst that sparked Luther's ire. Now, Luther really, he really just wanted to, you know, he, he just wanted to thought, you know, once I present the word of God to my superiors. Once the church sees the errors of its ways, they are going to want to return and, and submit to the biblical authority, right? No, it didn't happen that way. I mean, uh, and so in 1517 when he uh, nailed this document, it began a, 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 a just this avalanche of of controversy that eventually a few years later, I believe about four years later, he was brought before, or actually um, uh, was put on trial in Germany because there was this this kind of this king ruler uh, over that part of Germany by the name of Frederick. And he really protected Luther because he knew if Luther went to Rome, he probably would never be seen again. So Frederick wanted to get out of the political entanglement of Rome, he didn't really have any real spiritual reason to do it. He just didn't want Rome, you know, bossing them around and telling them what to do. But in God's providence, how many of you know, sometimes he uses anybody and everybody to accomplish his purposes. So Frederick kind of said, no, Luther's not leaving Germany. He's going to go on trial here. So the Pope sent all his big shots and leaders there and put Luther on trial and uh, that's the statement where Luther said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I, I, I can do no other. Here I stand, that famous statement that we saw. So that's kind of where we're at. But before we talk this morning uh, about grace, take your bulletin. And out of the Reformation came these, uh, I call them slogans because that kind of is a term that helps us but there were terms, uh, certainly this wasn't it, but there were five essential foundations. I'm calling them anchors. Uh, uh, They all might be referred to as, you might read, or or the sola. Sola means alone. And on your bulletin, if you have your bulletin, we've read this each um, Sunday, and this is just kind of takes these Five uh, foundations or five anchors in this paragraph. So let's just read this together. On the front of your your bulletin, it's on the screen there. You can follow along, but let's just read this together. All right. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Let's let's read that one more time. According to the authority of scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, as I mentioned, these statements are sometimes referred to as so S O L A. Uh, is the Latin word that means alone, and we're looking at four in the in the four uh, weeks or four Sundays in October. We might look at glory of God alone in the first Sunday of November because there's there's really five of them, but these four are, are uh, the ones that oftentimes people emphasize the most. And this morning we're going to look at grace alone. We looked at Scripture alone, meaning that this out of the Reformation that the foundation is that we are under the authority of Scripture. If Scripture does not guide us, if Scripture does not teach it, if Scripture does not mandate it, then we don't do it. We don't practice it. Does that mean we don't do any traditions? No, we do lots of traditions. But we are not under the authority of traditions. As I mentioned, in Roman Catholic theology, there's really two bookends of authority. One is the Bible... But the second is church tradition. As Protestants, we look to ultimately the Bible as our final authority on matters of faith and practice. Does the Bible tell us how to take the offering? Do we pass plates or have a box? Does it tell us to meet at 10 a.m.? No. We, have, there, we do a lot of things that might have to do with tradition, but we don't look to those traditions in an authoritative way by the way of, we do of Scripture. So that may be an awkward way of talking about Scripture alone. Christ alone, we talked about that last week, meaning that it's through Christ and Christ alone that our salvation is bought, paid for, and secured there's there's not a cooperation of Jesus plus the church or Jesus plus works or Jesus plus this it's Christ alone and so this morning we talk we're going to look at grace alone meaning that my salvation is through the good pleasure and graciousness of God not because of anything I've earned or not because of any indulgences I've purchased that gives me a little extra one-up on my relatives or myself or maybe certain acts of penance. Those of you who are raised in Roman Catholic, am I using words that you've heard of? Penance and, you know, meaning that when I'm baptized, as an infant is baptized and initiated into the church as an infant, that baptism releases them and cleanses that infant from the judgment of original sin. But yet, As that person lives their life, they still have to pay for and deal with the sins that are committed. And if those sins, through penance and acts of service and and, and whatever, uh, if those things are not adequately paid for in this life, guess where you go when you die? You go to purgatory. And no telling how many years you will spend in purgatory until those sins are completely paid for by whatever works you're doing in purgatory. That, my friend, is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel says Jesus paid it all. This high priest entered into the sanctuary and did it once for all. All, There's no making up of something was incomplete in the final and complete work of Jesus. So we're going to talk about grace today. Now, that's an easy subject because we talk about grace a lot around here. And uh, But this morning, we're going to focus on grace alone. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to be Lord appreciative of our heritage, to be thankful for those who have gone before us, who have paid the price for the Bibles that we have, the faith that, God, we've been given. We are debtors of grace, not only because of Jesus, but to those who have led the way, Lord, in our history and our life, some that we may never uh, even have heard about. But, Lord, we stand on a great heritage of faithful men and women. So help us today as we open your word. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Now, before you can appreciate the bad news, or the good news, uh, you need to be reminded that of, the, of the bad news. Before you get the good news, there's the bad news. The bad news is grace is only understood when you understand it against the backdrop that we don't deserve it. Hello? <laughs> we don't deserve it. The Bible is clear, uh, and I'll just give some uh, uh, references here that are uh, representative. Look, in, uh, I'll have it on the screen, I believe, Romans 3, 10 through 12. Scripture, Paul writes here in Romans 3, reads, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You get the idea there pretty clear. How many are righteous? None. No one understands, no one seeks God, no one who does good, unless we misunderstand it, two times it says, not even one. Now, that's representative of what the Bible teaches, that humanity is born in sin. We sin because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we are sin. Our nature, we are born into sin. We are sinners. We are without hope. Okay? And so the necessity of grace that Paul and Scripture makes crystal clear here is that we will never understand what grace is about till we understand why we need grace, why we need mercy. All right? So, just in a quick way, let's talk about what do we mean by grace, defining grace. Well, grace is contrary to merit, it's not something you earn. That's why you get grace, you don't earn it. We talk about grace as the unmerited favor of God. If it was merited, if it was something you earned, it was something you could procure, then it wouldn't be grace. Grace says, scripturally, that we have done and are born into a condition where we do not deserve this. We, have, we don't have any, there's nothing on, the only thing that we bring and we contribute so this salvation, this grace salvation, is our sin. Grace means that salvation starts with God. God takes the initiative. God makes the first move. Grace is not, well, God helps those who help themselves. No. Grace is God saving those who are incapable of helping themselves grace teaches us that as i said our part in salvation is the sin that we bring look at romans 9:16 and i think there's also that quote uh, that i'm referring to from jonathan edwards romans 9:16 romans 9 is a great chapter on the sovereign grace of god that it begins with the mercy of God and the initiative of God. And 9.16 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has what? Mercy. Don't pray for God to give me justice. You don't want justice. You want mercy. You want grace. And Jonathan Edwards, the quote I was paraphrasing, says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what you and I add to this. So, secondly, why do we need grace? Well, I'm kind of, kind of uh, reiterate it this way, and let me go through several things that are just reminders, or maybe they are, uh, these things might be new. Because as, I, I'm, as, as a pastor of this church and pastoring for a while, I am sometimes astounded at how folks who've been believers and Christians for a long time will often make statements that are contrary to what the Bible teaches about the gospel about grace and so these are just reminders maybe to many of you but they're also uh maybe some things that are helpful in kind of understanding this so before we were saved let me uh uh give you uh, several things here i'm gonna go through these kind of fast they'll be on the screen so before we were saved this is our condition before we were saved we were so dead that only god could make us alive Before we were saved, that's what Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, you weren't like the gospel song uh, waiting for the lifeline of the gospel. That lifeline wouldn't have done you any good. You were dead on the bottom of the ocean, to use that picture there. You couldn't reach out and respond to the gospel, okay? You see, faith is a fruit of, of regeneration. Regeneration is not a fruit of faith. What comes first? Regeneration. And Jesus said in John 3, that unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Even the gift to act in faith is a gift from God, and that is not of yourselves. Another is that we were so blind that only God could give us sight. 2 Corinthians 4 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We were blind that only God could give us sight. We were so sinful before Christ, we were so sinful that only God could could forgive us, Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Our nature, we were born in sin. If we were born with, well, yeah, we are sinners, but we still had the ability to respond and act, then you know what? The initiative of salvation doesn't belong with God. It's just based on me, that I have the ability. And let me just say this. I had a note earlier, and make sure nobody misunderstands. It is wrong to say that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that they believe in salvation by works and not grace. That's not accurate. They do, you can read the catech. It's clear that they believe in salvation by grace. Here's the difference. And it's in that one little word alone. That's the difference that we have. It isn't salvation by grace alone that we we embrace because we believe that's the testimony of scripture. The Roman Catholic would say, no, it is salvation by grace plus plus certain works of penance and actions that will procure that grace. That's why we talked about indulgences and purgatory uh, earlier, because it isn't finished. There's still something we contribute and add. Uh, Before Christ, we were so bad that only God can make us good. Jeremiah 21 or 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Only God can make us good. And also that we are so lost that only God could save us. Only God could save us. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. We've been talking about Martin Luther, and I figured it'd be good to put a few good quotes in here from Luther. Martin Luther says, in light of this, of why we need grace, he says, We receive absolution or forgiveness and grace at no cost or labor on our part, but it is not without cost and labor on the part of Christ. Our salvation must exist not in our righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. Let his righteousness and grace, not yours, be your refuge. Aren't you glad that his righteousness is our refuge? Aren't you glad this week that his righteousness and his mercy and his grace was your security and your refuge and not you and what you did or what you didn't do? So what difference does grace alone make? Okay, let's get down to real, some, some statements here that will kind of land the plane. What difference? We're, talking about, we're not just talking about grace. We're talking about it in the context of, of the Reformation, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone. What difference does that one word, sola, alone, what difference does that make? Should it make any difference? Let me suggest to you just some implications, some practical things. And these are just random, okay, that I wrote down because I'm like, okay. I always ask, say, at the end of the message, so what? What's the implication here? What do we take away from this? So let me just suggest five. I could give you 15 or 20, but these are just five that, uh, that came uh, to my mind. And one is that grace alone destroys self-righteousness. You see, when you understand that I have been saved not because of anything I've done, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust, the sweetest frame, but what? Holy lean on Jesus' name. It's that holy lean that humbles a man or a woman. Turning your Bibles to Luke 18. I do hope you have your Bibles, whether you have a Bible the way the Apostle Paul carried it, bound with pages, or you have it in electronic form, uh, whatever, but it's good to open your Bibles or at least do a quick search on your phone for your Bible. But I want you to look at a passage, maybe look at it later. There's an example that, uh, that I believe represents this about this self-righteousness, and it's a parable that uh, Jesus uh, told in Luke 18, if you would uh, go down to verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. Here's an example of humility versus self-righteousness. And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, you may want to mark that, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. You know, religion will do that to you, won't it? It breeds that self-righteousness and you look down on everybody that doesn't just conform the way you think and you glory in your sense of identity and specialty before God so he really was telling this to those that were trusting in their own self-righteousness. Look at verse 10. And he tells the story, this parable. parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. That's what a parable is. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, quote, God I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, bragging in his self-righteousness. But look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I like the way the New American Standard has the sinner, not a sinner, the sinner. As if he is the only human on earth that is a sinner. He says, have mercy on me, the sinner. Like Paul would say, I am the chief of all sinners. Verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you, this man, that tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be will be exalted. What difference does grace alone make? It destroys that self-righteous pride when we come before the Lord and say, have mercy on me, the sinner. Secondly, God's grace frees us from having to win God's favor. You see, religion based on performance, where you just have this endless cycle of trying to do enough to earn God's favor, it will never end. It will never end. It will wrap you in a a spiritual pretzel of trying to do enough to earn God's favor. Uh, Luther was like that. Uh, And we'll talk about that towards the end there. He was like that. He was in this cycle of trying to earn God's favor. Grace means that God loves us, loves the believer, loves the child of God eternally. We are secure in him. Thirdly, grace enables us to serve God without fear. You see, if you're in a performance mindset, you never have that sense of love and security because you're always feeling, have I done enough to earn God's love today? Have I done enough? Oh, I forgot to pray. I was in a hurry at the gas station. I didn't share and I didn't witness to that person there what a lousy Christian I am. God, I know, is very angry at me because of what I didn't do. I passed by the guy needing a ride, and I'm in a hurry to work, and I didn't pick him up. Oh, if I was truly a Christian, I would have been more merciful. Anybody ever hear things like that go through your head? Oh, good, a couple of us. The rest of you, uh, you, just, you, just, you just chill for the rest of this. Of course we hear that. We talked about it on Wednesday night, didn't we, on the spiritual warfare teaching. The enemy, what is he? What is the description? He is the accuser of But when you understand who you are in Christ, when you understand what Christ has done, when you rest in the finished work of Jesus and you understand that I am in Christ, you understand Colossians 3.3 that says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of my favorite verses. That your life is hidden with Christ in God. That when God looks at my life, As a believer, when he looks at your life, does he see me? Well, of course he sees me, but he sees me in Christ. The same Christ that he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So if I'm wrapped up in Christ, in Jesus, is God pleased with me, Regis? You bet he is. Why? Because I'm in Christ. That will set you free. It will set a man or a woman free to not look at God as always looking for ways to complicate and ruin your life because he gets some perverted pleasure out of making you miserable. We can serve him without fear. Fourthly, Takes the pressure off our witnessing. You know why it does? The pressure that maybe you feel, and there's times that I feel, and still, and this is not to confuse that we shouldn't have a zeal and a fervency. But here's the difference is that when I say it takes the pressure, understanding grace, it's our job to make the message clear and plain, but it's God's role. To save another man or a woman. I can't save anybody. That's the sovereign grace of God. What's my job? What has he been given? We are to go into all the world. The writer of Hebrews says, How can they hear unless someone is sent? If someone speaks, if someone preaches, how will they hear? God in his sovereignty that we love to talk about has also ordained the means by which he accomplishes his purposes. And that's you and me. We're to be obedient. We're to be light in the midst of darkness. But it is not dependent on us. It's God who does the saving. We are to be faithful as lights and and echoes of that grace. And fifth, is this message is never going to be popular, and it will be offensive. You're like, what are you talking about? This is fantastic, this grace. You know why it's offensive? Is because it cuts to what we said, number one. It cuts to the very core of an unregenerate man or woman's sense of pride. How dare you tell me that I have to submit? I, I, I can save. Certainly, I, I can do this. How dare you tell me that my salvation is dependent on God and God alone? Why, we all make our own beds and have to sleep in it. We all bring our best. God is not going to judge me because of somebody else's sin. Why, I'm a good person. What do you think, I'm a Jeffrey Dahmer? I'm a Manson? Why, I'm a good person. And in light of those people, you probably are. Remember what we read earlier? There is none who are good. Because our standard of righteousness is so different than the holy God. A holy God. And this is, this is offensive because it, it is that our salvation, our relationship with God, depends entirely on his good pleasure. And we do not like that. Give you, remember in John 6, Jesus said, and I don't think I have these on this, this verse on the screen. Remember, John 6 is a radical chapter. Right in the middle, it has a lot of verses there, which is unusual for a New Testament book. And this is the feeding of the 5,000. You remember when Jesus fed them, what did they want to do with Jesus? They wanted to make him king for life. And politicians have been trying to replicate that ever since. You just give them a bunch of free stuff, they'll elect you forever. Until <laughs> you get the bill. And so in John 6, here they were, the context is they were going to make Jesus king. They were going to decide that they would make him king. And Jesus reminds them, you don't make me king. I am king. Jesus said in John six sixty five. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, now listen to this, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The NIV says it uh, uh, with a little difference, and I think it's helpful. The NIV, John six sixty five says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. You remember when you were maybe in school or somewhere and you said, uh, Can I go, Mrs. Jones, can I go to the bathroom? And if she was a good English teacher, she would say, I don't know. Can you? <laughs> you May I go to the bathroom? Because, see, one has to do with, can has to do with ability. She's like, I don't know, I'm not going to follow you in there. I don't know if you have the ability or not. John 65 says, no one can come to the Father because they are unable by their fallen nature on their own, apart from the pleasure and initiating grace of God to come because no one can come to me unless the Father has granted them to come. I didn't read it. I had it in my notes. The promise in Ezekiel 36, uh, the promise of the new covenant, the new covenant promise. I will put my law upon their hearts. I will give them my spirit. Where's the initiation coming from? God and God alone. It's grace and grace alone. It's not something I contribute to my salvation, as I said, for by grace, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and clear as clear can be, that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. And to quote Luther, I love this, God creates faith in the human heart the same way he created the world he found nothing and created something. You see how these four anchors connect? These four solas begin to mesh together on the basis of the Bible, on Scripture alone. We know that our salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, and next week we'll talk about through faith alone. In just a minutes, so I wanted to Kind of bring this back. And again, when to talk about Martin Luther, he was just a human. We don't exalt Luther anymore and we exalt David or anybody else. They were just instruments that God used at a point in time. But because we're doing something a little differently this month, um, I'm talking a little bit more about him because 500 years of uh, this month and uh, next week, that's a significant thing as a Christian church. And if you know nothing else, I think it's good to have a little understanding of some of your history and where you come from, because I think that's part of who we are as Christians, to be thankful for those who paid the price and came and uh, labored before us. Martin Luther, interesting, at the age of 21, his goal and purpose, um, his father had become wealthy as a miner of copper there in Germany where they live, so he had some means, and he wanted his son to go to law school. Because, like good parents, they want our children to be very successful so that they take care of mom and dad, right? (laughs) And so that was what he was going to pursue. He was going to be a lawyer. And one day, walking across the campus of where he was going to school, he was 21 years of age, there was a great thunderstorm. And a bolt of lightning hit very near where Luther was walking. It scared him and shook him up so bad that he fell to his knees and cried out as a good Catholic and prayed for the safety of St. Anne. Now, St. Anne in Roman Catholic tradition is the mother of Mary. The Bible doesn't say anything, identify that. But she was also the patron saint of the miners, the copper miners. So St. Anne was right on his mind. So he prayed for mercy. Now, this is what he did. He not only prayed and asked St. Anne for protection... But he made the rash decision and said, If you protect me and let me live, I will become a monk. I'll become a priest. Well, he kept his word, and his father was furious an embarrassment that his son would give up the the wealth and future of becoming a lawyer to becoming a preacher, a priest. How dare he? And so he went and joined the St. Augustine order of, in the monastery. And this is what I referenced to earlier, is Luther was driven almost to obsession with trying to earn or be accepted by God through his labors. Let me give you a, a quote on the screen there. Luther says this, When I was a monk... I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. And I love this quote here The lot. He said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. I love that. Luther's got a great sense of humor. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery. Now, (laughs) I mean, when he was a priest in this monastery, if you've ever read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, which they might let you into heaven if you don't read that, but it it will broaden, give you an understanding of God. And and, uh, if you're not a reader of good books. There's a good one to start with, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. But he tells the story that when Luther was in the monastery, um, most, you know, as part of their offices or, or, or their routines, they would go through confession. And most the time, it would be, you know, short confessions, and the confessional, uh, the father confessor uh, that was hearing this would, you know, give them uh, absolution, give them a penance, uh, Whatever, and it usually would just take a minute or two. Think, well, how much trouble are you going to get in a monster? I coveted Brother Joe's potato salad, and that, you know, I don't know, whatever they do. Luther, he would go into that confessional, not for one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours. Sometimes up to six or seven hours. And the leader said, Martin, Brother Martin, you're wearing us out. You can't keep doing this. I mean, you're coming in with what Martin Luther would do is he'd go through the Ten Commandments and the seven deadly sins, and sometimes he would leave the confessional and come back in because he forgot to confess something that he forgot. You know, he forgot in the booth there because why? because he was laboring to be pleasing to God. Oh, you know while his motives may have been different I think about the triviality that we look at with our sins. But he was trying to earn that. And finally the one of his leaders there in the in the in the monastery said, "Brother Martin, please don't come in with these trivial sins. Come in with something big next time, right? I mean, basically, that's what he was saying. We don't have time for us sitting there for six hours listening and having you going through these things. Martin Luther, when he was conferred as, an, as a priest and he was to celebrate his first mass, his father and mother came that service, which surprised him because the father had been so angry at what he had done, and his father came to the mass and brought some friends there, and um, he finally kind of just accepted martin 's course of life as a as a priest and one of the biographies, all of them tell this that when he celebrated his first mass, and as you know, one of the roles in The Catholic Church is uh, what what is called, they call transubstantiation, which the priest takes the wine and the bread and they literally, as the priest, they literally, uh, it literally becomes the blood and body of Jesus in that consecration moment at the Mass. And as Luther was going to do this for the very first time, now remember all this obsession And here he is going to handle what he understood as most holy things. As he celebrated his first mass, he held the bread and cup for the first time. And he was so awestruck at the thought of what was about to take place, he almost fainted. In fact, he actually could not go through with it. This was a big deal, you know, kind of your... You know, your first mass and your father and mother and friends. And one of the assistant priests had to come and aid him and help him get through this because he was so overwhelmed at the thought of his own sense of unworthiness to handle something, as he understood it, so holy. He said, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, who am I? That I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And here I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. This was not somebody that just came this with a trivial slip sliding away. This was somebody who was terrified of God. Who had yet to understand and receive the grace of God. And so one of the priests said, later said, you know what, you need, Martin, you need to take a trip to Rome. It'll do you good to go to Rome. You'll see all the sights, the holy city, and, and it'll, it'll inspire you. And so uh, he traveled to Rome, which took months, you know, in those days and traveling. And when he came to Rome, he writes on how he was struck at the utter depravity of the city and more specifically at the corruption of the priests. He wrote about the corruption of priests that were involved with sexual immorality. This is in 15-whatever, 1515. Sexual immorality, regularly consorting with prostitutes, male and female. Priests that were... Uh, doing masses there in the various chapels, would do six to eight mass, mass masses in an hour, kind of running you through, ding, 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 you know. And he said, again, here was this man looking for, for the holiness of God and the connection there, and he sees at the very heart of what he had given his life to such corruption and triviality. But he thought, you know, I'm going to do something that I think will be helpful. And he went and visited a particular uh, chapel that had stairs, and I have a picture of it there. This is uh, called the uh, the Scala Sancta, or holy stairs. And these stairs, 28 stairs, that... Church tradition says that these were the twi- these were the steps that originated at Pilate's palace in Jerusalem. And in the year 333, uh Constantine um said his mother did it, but whatever, uh, that sh- they had these steps brought from Jerusalem to Rome. And the Roman Catholic understanding and, and those pictures on the other side, That is, those are pictures that you can go there and you can do this. Notice they're all on their knees. And so Luther, in order to receive an, an indulgence, he couldn't get an indulgence for his mother or father because they were alive. But he wanted to get an indulgence for his grandparents so that they would not have to spend as much time in purgatory. And so what he did is he walked walk, on his knees proceeded up these 28 steps and each step stopping to recite the Lord's Prayer and prayers to Mary and he did this with hundreds of others that were there. And listen to this, don't don't check out on me, I'm done, just listen to this. When he reached the top step, hoping in some way by That action, he looked back, looking down, and thought, and said this. Who knows whether this is true? Didn't give him the peace that he thought. And here's where we land. Luther's failure to find assurance drove him to the scriptures to find the truth and to find the assurance his failure drove him and what he learned is something that we must learn and help us with this understanding of grace, is that we cannot ascend or climb our way to Christ. The gospel is, is that Christ came down to us. That's the gospel. That's the truth of Scripture, and that's the truth of our heritage. That we celebrate. Because it was a return. It was a revival. Of biblical Christianity. For while we were yet in sin. Jesus. And if I could paraphrase it. Descended the stairs. As John 1 says. He came to us. Pitched tent. Set up house. For fallen humanity fallen sinners. He came to us. Let's pray.